Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our warm-up podcast presented by Dr. Laren Tan. My name is Dr. Nasreen Kazani, and I'm the moderators today. We have designed this podcast as a tool and benefit for members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. The WOMPA members involved in planning this podcast have no relevant financial relationship to disclose, and neither does the presenter, Dr. Tan. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Dr. Tan. Dr. Tan is a pulmonology and critical care specialist, associated professor, and also chair of the Department of Medicine in Loma Linda University School of Medicine. Dr. Tan has substantial experience in obstructive airway disease like asthma and COPD. Just this past month, uh, he most recently was featured as a physician expert in a Time Magazine article with two other physician giant in obstructive airway disease. Our focus, our talk today is mainly occupational asthma and it will start with the first question. We all know asthma is an inflammatory pathway and has different subtypes. Can you please elaborate more about these subtypes and its importance in management of asthma in an asthmatic patient? Hi, Dr. Kazimi, and thank you uh, for this opportunity along with all of WEMA. I really appreciate it. And, and then what you've just asked is an excellent question. Um, Asthma does have multiple inflammatory pathways and different subtypes. Of about like the 26 million Americans that actually have asthma, we can say about five to 10% have most severe asthma. In, in the whole gamut, we would say within asthma, there, there is what we would say there is these different subtypes where there is a type two high and a type two low. It really depends upon what we call as the endotypes or, or what is the, the makeup that actually causes um, to have this type 2 high inflammatory profile and this type 2 low. So why it's important to understand these different subtypes is because the treatment algorithm or how they actually how these asthmatics respond to treatment differs between these different subtypes. So within the type two high, there is an early onset. They tend to be more atopic. They have some allergic component to it. There is a later subtype where after the age of 20, they tend to be actually more of an eosinophil type, right? Where the cells primarily tend to be eosinophilic. About 50% of asthmatics actually have eosinophilia associated with it. And then in addition to that, you have this type two low, which can be a little bit much harder to actually try to treat. They tend to be more neutrophilic in, in, in cell type predominance, and they don't respond very well to corticosteroids. Um, and then lastly, there's this posogranulocytic asthma where they have normal eosinophils and neutrophils. And while it's not completely understood why these asthmatics have this type of cell type, um, it is, again, one of those those subtypes, they make it very hard to control and they don't typically respond as well as they do to the type two high subtypes to the various different types of therapies that we have. Thank you very much for your detailed um, information. So the, the second question is, apart from clinical sign and symptoms and spirometry tests that we do for the diagnosis, what other tests or biomarkers 
can help us to accurately diagnose and treat these, these subtypes? It is great. You know, when we think about asthma, you want to look at the clinical signs and symptoms, right? That, that kind of puts up that flag for us to be able to go, wow, is there some trigger that's causing them to have the wheezing, the cough, the chest tightness, the breathlessness? And then we look into, well, okay, let's find some objective tests, right? Such as spirometry, a breathing test that could be done with bronchodilator. Methacholine is another one too. But as we move more towards precision medicine, especially within asthma, these biomarkers, which you may hear most commonly, are starting to surface up and are very key. Why is that? Because now we're starting to have more advanced therapies that's targeted towards these difficult to control asthmatics. So a biomarker is short for really what we call a biological marker, right? It's an objective measure that captures what's going on within, we say, an inflammatory, perhaps an inflammatory pathway or the cell itself at that moment. And so what we have for biomarkers currently to test at least airway inflammation or we say systemic inflammation, we can look at blood eosinophils. We can look at sputum eosinophils. Um, within, at least we can do with bronchial uh, alveolar lavages. We can also do fractional exhaled nitric oxide, which is another surrogate um, to be able to see what the airway inflammation is going on within the airways. Um, there is also, again, with blood work, uh, immunoglobulin E and IgE. We can actually get that too. And then lastly, there's always allergic sensitization, right? Whether that be on skin, but through skin or by blood work. But all of these biological markers, as we get as we start to get them, helps to paint a better picture as to what type, what subtype of these um, asthmatics they may be, in addition to if they're difficult to control, what type of additional therapies we could actually add on. Uh, excellent. Uh, so I have a one follow-up question on this one before to move on to the next question is, um, at what stage do we measure this biomicrobes? That is a great question, Dr. Kazimi. You know, very early on, we were also puzzled. We were wondering when, when should we get these bio, biological markers? Should we actually wait um, towards when they're actually more difficult to control or, or should we actually get them much earlier? What we realized, at least with the biomarkers, is that it can actually change throughout the continuum of an asthmatic's journey. And so what we've actually, I'd say the majority of a, a lot of us have actually agreed upon is it's probably best to get at least some basic biomarkers at the very beginning, or if you actually have a new asthmatic that you're actually seeing. And why is that important is that because a lot of times what we want to be able to say is if they are controlled, you know, it'd be good to be able to see, well, what are you perhaps allergic to? Right. Let's say let's do some skin testing or or some blood work to to be able to assess what they may be allergic to, because in, more importantly, what we want to be able to do and not just controlling the symptoms is preventative. Right. We want to be able to prevent them from having another asthma attack. And it's hard for at least for some patients to know, well, maybe I actually need to avoid this specific pollen or I didn't realize I was actually allergic to cats. Um, you think it'd be intuitive, but you'd be surprised. There are a lot of, of patients out there that just don't know. And these different biomarkers can be very helpful. In addition to also finding out, wow, your eosinophils are extremely high, but your symptoms are somewhat controlled. It's good to know that, okay, this person's eosinophil is really high. 
And if it ever gets to the point where they're not well controlled, perhaps then we can add on some additional advanced therapy that would target the eosinophils. So early on biomarker testing is extremely important, I'd say now. And especially if you have something like called fractional till nitric oxide, that could be done periodically with each visit if, you're, if your clinic's able to do that. Okay, then uh, we are, as uh, from your uh, point uh, and discussion, I understood that measuring the biomarkers not only help us to have a better accurate diagnosis, but also to know what the preventive measure we can take to prevent the future flare-up. Absolutely. And then just to just jump a little bit more on that is that sometimes what we'll do is we'll periodically actually repeat our biomarkers, especially when we're starting to get the sense that asthma is not well controlled, uh, because that may help us to be able to see the inflammatory profile. Has that been changing within the patient or is something else going on that, that may actually not be asthma related? So now let's talk about the biological drugs. So we know biological drugs for the treatment of allergic asthma was first introdu introduced in 2002. And since then, some other biological came to the market. This drug has been a great success in the treatment of asthma, particularly severe asthma. Can you elaborate more the latest treatment option for asthma and what group of asthmatic patients will benefit the most? This is probably the most exciting part about asthma. If you look at the history of asthma, for a very long time, all we had at that time was just oral corticosteroids. And I want to make it very clear to the audience that's actually listening, and that is oral corticosteroids, I don't believe, is a horrible drug in the right setting, and we actually need to use it. It is a miracle drug. Right. Think about the asthma exacerbations. That is the absolute time that we need to give an oral corticosteroid. But the issue and the problem that we're seeing is that repeated oral corticosteroid use, as you know, or even just chronic use of oral corticosteroids can have profound long-term effects on the patients, right? Osteoporosis, inability to control blood sugars, glaucoma, and you name it, the list goes on and on and on and on. So as you were alluding, actually, um, Zolero, Omeluzumab, was first FDA approved in 2003. And so that was a game changer, right? Able to, to target immunoglobulin E. It binds onto IgE. And by binding onto IgE, it made it so that this way mast cells uh, wasn't able to degranulate. Other cells weren't able to actually degranulate and cause uh, some of the symptoms that I actually just mentioned previously, the wheezing, the runny eyes, the, the, the chest tightness. And you fast forward from 2003, then the next drug that we ended up having was mepoluzumab was in 2015, and then rezoluzumab in 2016, venraluzumab in 2017, dupilumab in 2018, and then most recently tezepilumab. So why am I naming all these different MABs? These are advanced therapies that we have now from asthma. You know, it, it, it is amazing. If, you, if, if all of these that I've seen, now we've got six advanced therapies. Now we know that omelizumab targets IgE, immunoglobulin E. We have got three different medications, mepoluzumab, rezoluzumab, and venralizumab that targets IL-5, or we could say um, the eosinophilic component of things. Um, dupilumab is an anti-IL-4 receptor target. And then the newest is tezepilumab, which is an anti-TSLP. So all these different names that I'm saying, what I'm trying to get at is that we have advanced much farther in asthma in being able to specifically target very specific inflammatory or endotypes 
um, such as the interleukin-5, the interleukin-4 or 13, TSLP or even IgE. All of these have been wonders in, in being able to control the asthma exacerbation, decrease the inflammatory profiles, and that's also the rationale as to why we want to get biomarkers very early on. And the type of patients that benefit most from these advanced biologic therapies tend to be more between moderate to severe. Early on in, in what we're talking, I, I stated about 5 to 10% have the, are the most severe asthmatics that make it very difficult to control it with the normal type of therapy that we have, which is inhaler therapy and avoidance of allergens, right? So those are the subset of patients from moderate to severe asthmatics. This is where advanced biologics should be considered and started. Excellent. Um, so let's uh, get back to the occupational medicine and see how can this biological help us uh, to treat our patient and help them to return to work uh, quicker. What is your experience in terms of using this biological in terms of occupational asthma and return to work process? You know, the thing about occupational asthma is that many times it is underdiagnosed. Um, I will say I'm I am the first culprit of that, and 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 it's something that I have to keep reminding myself to ask about work um, rather than just hobbies or pets, um, because the occupation could actually be the source, right? Um, and, and a lot of times, if you look at asthma, you if you avoid that allergen, that's really the end all be all, the, the cure uh, for 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 asthma. But that's not reality. That's not the reality. That, that doesn't help out uh, the, the individual that needs the, the work or even the company that needs the individual to work, right? And so the experience in biologic treatments for occupational asthma is not very well studied. But what, the, but what, but what we do have evidence on is that based upon the inflammatory profiles, right, and we also know that someone who's not well controlled with standard inhaler therapy, we know that they're using it, they've got great technique, and they're trying to do their best to wear a mask and avoid whatever they can at work, and their asthma is still not well controlled, advanced therapy should really be considered at that time. Because in my, in my personal experience, it's, it's helped quite a few individuals get back to work, actually live a normal life being able to get back to exercising and, and just live a more healthier life altogether. Uh, so this is something that just because that someone may have occupational asthma should not preclude them from at least exploring or this discussion of advanced therapies such as biologic therapies for, for that asthmatic. One more question in follow-up of the uh, occupation asthma and biologic. As a primary treatment physician for this uh, group of patients, uh, do you, and considering that probably these medications are very expensive, do you think that um, when the patient comes to this level, this is the time that we need to refer the patient to the specialist? And it's not our job to even consider this medication. I think as the primary treating physician, it is great to start that conversation. But I do agree, when you as a primary tr uh, treating physician um, have already maximized on the inhaler therapy and, 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 and really you know, done, done due diligence in making sure, of course, you know, like, right, this is the right diagnosis, that the individual is compliant on their medications, 
Uh, there are no gaps in terms of their treatment. At that point, referring over to, to a pulmonologist or an allergist who also deals with a lot of these advanced bi biologics, uh, I think is, is a great next step. Um, having that discussion and really providing the, the patient with hope, knowing that there are more advanced therapies, that this is not going to be their life for the rest of their life. It doesn't need to be that way. Uh, it can be very helpful. And so while I, while I do agree that perhaps prescribing it may be a little bit more complex, but I will say that, that they've made it very streamlined that anybody can do it. I think before adding on an advanced therapy, having, having a second set of eyes look at it to just make sure that we're not missing anything else can be very helpful because as you've stated, these, these injections are very costly and, and they actually, we just want to make sure that we're put providing it for the right patient at the right time. Uh, on behalf of Vomo, I would like to sincerely thank you, our speaker, Dr. Tian, for his time and effort as well and clarifying this such important question regarding the asthma and occupation asthma. Have a great weekend. Thank you, everybody.